Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. This is our third week in our series on the book of Jonah, and we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week, which is Jonah uh, chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, uh, start making your way in your own Bible, go ahead. Just a quick recap of where we've been so far. Jonah received a message from God to go and preach to the Ninevites, Israel's enemies. But Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. And he didn't want to go so badly that he preferred to drown at sea than go there. And so he told the sailors that he was traveling with to throw him into the sea, and he sank down into those dark, watery depths. And he, he said he went all the way down to Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. He went all the way down to the realm of the dead, and there he found everlasting prison bars, eternal prison bars, forever bars, locking him in. And yet, he called on the Lord, and the Lord rescued him from those eternal bars. A whale swallowed his body and carried his body within him for three days and three nights, and then when the time was right, he the whale vomited Jonah up onto dry land, uh, and Jonah was revived. And Jesus would later see in this story a prefiguring of himself, a prefiguring of his death and then his resurrection. Because Jesus also went down into Sheol, overcame those eternal prison bars, and raised to new life. So, at this point, the story has already prefigured Jesus, but we're only halfway done with the book of Jonah. We've still got two more chapters. So now, we're going to find out what happened after God raised Jonah from the dead. So, let's dive in. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So even after being raised up from Sheol, Jonah still needs a nudge. <laughs> God has to speak to him again and say, go to Nineveh. And this time, finally, Jonah obeys. And that means that he makes a 550. 50, or, yeah, 550 mile journey to Nineveh, the land of Israel's enemies. So continuing in verse 3. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, 
he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, uh, so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So, Jonah travels throughout Nineveh, calling out, saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not much of a sermon, right? Um, There's nothing in there about an offer of God's forgiveness, Uh, or even any specific mention of what Nineveh's sins are, right? Just 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And yet, Nineveh is spared. So, that raises the question, was Jonah's prophecy wrong? Well, some people have noticed that there is a sense in which Jonah's prophecy does come true. Because that word that's translated here as overthrown, some translations put it as overturned. Turned over. Forty days in Nineveh will be turned over. That could mean that um, that Nineveh will be destroyed. But it could also mean that it will be transformed that Nineveh will turn over a new leaf, that it will repent and go in the opposite direction. And so a case can be made that Jonah's prophecy does come true, just not in the way that we would expect, and probably not in the way that Jonah intended either. You might remember that last week I talked about this idea that When the Holy Spirit speaks through somebody, the Spirit can intend a meaning that the human speaker does not. And that may be what's going on here. Jonah doesn't intend to imply that Nineveh will repent. And yet the Spirit speaking through him does intend that meaning. And so Jonah is an unusually effective prophet. The whole city repents in response to his words. And this is not usually a prophet's experience. If you've read the stories of the prophets in the Bible, you know this. Uh, When the great prophet Isaiah was first called by, by God, God told him, that he would be speaking to people who would be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Meaning, Isaiah, I'm sending you to people who just are not going to get what you are telling them. It's quite a calling, right? But that's usually the prophet's calling. The prophet goes and gives a message that has not yet been accepted. If it had been accepted, there would be no reason to send the prophet, right? So prophets usually have a rough time. And yet, 
Jonah's prophecy is heard, it's received, and it leads to repentance. The Ninevites feel regret for their violence and their evil ways. They call urgently on God. Even the king himself puts on sackcloth, the symbol of repentance. Even the animals of Nineveh are wearing sackcloth. So total is the repentance. So how do you think Jonah feels about this? We might expect that he'd be humbled and amazed, right? That he would be praying something like, oh God, I'm sorry that I never thought that this could even happen. I'm sorry that I ran in the other direction and, and couldn't even for a moment believe that this was possible. Everything's possible with you. Right, right? That's one reaction that we might expect. Uh, on the other hand, we might expect that he's feeling a little prideful. I'm really good at this prophet thing. That must be pretty special. But Jonah does not react with pride. And he doesn't react with uh, prayerful contrition and humility. He gets angry. Next verse. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Now, we just got a big revelation about Jonah right there. We now know why Jonah ran away when God called him to Nineveh. It was because he was afraid that God would be merciful to Nineveh. He was afraid that God was going to use him to help save Nineveh rather than destroy it. And Jonah didn't want anything to do with that. He says, this is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious, gracious and compassionate, God. Jonah did not want Nineveh to repent and be saved. Jonah wanted Nineveh to burn. When Nineveh repents, Jonah doesn't say, wow, praise God. He says, I was afraid of this. This is what I wanted to avoid. Remember when Jonah preferred to die at sea than go to Nineveh? That wasn't simply because he's a guy who just wants to do his own thing and doesn't like God telling him what to do. And it wasn't even because he was afraid of the violence that the Ninevites are capable of. I imagine he was fearful of that, but that, that wasn't it. That wasn't the only thing. The biggest thing, according to Jonah, is that he was afraid that God was going to be merciful to the, to the Ninevites through him. And now, 
because of that, Jonah wants to die. Because he has been part of bringing mercy to the Ninevites. And so God asks, well, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry? Does Jonah have a right to be angry? Well, Jonah definitely had reasons for disliking the Ninevites. The king of Nineveh acknowledges that they are violent and have evil ways, right? He says that himself. And a few weeks ago, I talked about how the historical record bears witness to this as well. The Ninevites could be incredibly cruel and violent uh, to their enemies in warfare. Um, I, uh, I read some of the historical accounts, and I'm going to spare you the gory details. But as I said a couple weeks ago, they include a lot of words like burning, flaying, cutting off, gouging out. Jonah has reason to hate the Ninevites. Valid reasons. Jonah's dislike of the Ninevites is not some sort of form of ignorant bigotry. Remember, what did Jonah do when he got called to Nineveh? He tried to go to Tarshish. So Jonah doesn't want all Gentile cities to be destroyed. right? He's not anti-Gentile in general. Otherwise, why would he go to Tarshish? He doesn't like the Ninevites because of their wickedness. Sometimes, when I come to the end of the book of Jonah, uh, the last time I preached on it, or if I'm leading a Bible study on it, um, I like to make fun of Jonah a little bit. It's always struck me as kind of funny that he prefers his own death to the salvation of the Ninevites. But honestly, this time I felt empathy for him. I imagine Jonah as an Israeli citizen and the Ninevites as Hamas. And I thought, you know, if I were in his shoes, I'd be just as upset as he is. Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? I imagine that Jonah hears that question and he thinks, well, maybe God is suggesting that the judgment's still coming, right? Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Hold on, just wait and see what I'm going to do, right? So that seems to be the way that Jonah interprets God's words, because this is the next thing that happens. It says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah still thinks there's a chance that judgment is coming. He set up a spot outside of the city where he can look down on it. He's got a good view. And he is waiting and hoping that fire is going to rain down on that place just like it did on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wants a front row seat for that. Continuing in verse 5. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plan? It is, he said. I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not send it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's where the book of Jonah ends. It just with that question hanging, unresolved. How did Jonah answer? No answer from Jonah. If you were here last week, you, hear, you heard me say that I wish people didn't just focus on the whale in Jonah, but that they paid more attention to the vine. Uh, both are important, but the vine gets such less attention than the whale, right? People who know about Jonah and the whale often have no idea that there's a vine in the story at all, or what it would mean. So why, with only six verses left in this story, does this vine show up? What's the point of the vine? Well, the vine is a tool that God uses to expose Jonah's heart. To show what he values. Think about it. Hey, there's Jonah, angry, grumbling, wanting to die, sitting in the hot sun, hoping that Nineveh still might be destroyed. And suddenly this vine grows up and unfurls over his head and it gives him shade. I mean, this is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the AC and, and Jonah is loving it, right? He gets some relief and he thinks, this is nice, I'm happy about this vine. But just as quickly as it grows up, it withers and dies. And Jonah's protection from the blazing sun and the scorching wind are gone, and once again, he's back to wishing he was dead. The reason that God sent the vine and took it away was to show that Jonah gets more excited about shade than about the salvation of 120,000 people. He cares more about a vine than a city of 120,000 people. And God wants Jonah to recognize the absurdity of this. Jonah didn't create that vine. He didn't tend it. So, and yet he cares about it, right? So how much more should God care about this city of 120,000 people, which he did create and has tended? And not only does God say that he should care about the people, but even the animals, too. There's a lot of creatures in Nineveh with a capacity for feeling, right? a capacity for both terrible pain and pleasure. Should God not care about all those creatures? 
Sure, Nineveh has cruel, wicked people. Absolutely. But are all 120,000 of them that way? God's questions to Jonah seem designed to make him realize that a city should never just be thought of as a city. Right? Nineveh is not just Nineveh. It's thousands of people and animals with histories and desires and stories and dreams and hopes. Would the world be better off if some of them were just wiped off the face of it? Yeah, probably. But all of them? Should God not care about all of them? Is a vine really more valuable than all of them? It's easy to rag on Jonah for caring more about a vine than about the lives of thousands of people. But I really don't think Jonah's attitude is unusual. I mean, if we're honest, right, a lot of us are more likely to get upset about, like, the price of gas um, than about the suffering of people in far-off places, right? Especially if those people are in a nation that we consider to be enemy territory, right? But the book of Jonah calls us to hear God asking, should I not care about that nation too? About those people? I mean, they are people after all. There's children and nursing moms and grandparents and even pets. Do you really want fiery judgment to rain down on all of them? God says that the people in Nineveh cannot tell their right hand from their left, which is an idiom that means they don't understand right from wrong. They're all messed up. They are morally ignorant. I find it interesting that God considers this a reason to care about them. Right? It seems like Jonah would be more likely to say, that's a reason to get rid of them. Their moral ignorance. But God sees the situation differently. It is good news that God is concerned for the morally ignorant. And we see this same quality of God expressed on the cross, right? When Jesus prays for those killing him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. And so Jesus prays for them. It's very clear to me that the same God who came to us in Jesus inspired the book of Jonah. Because, of course, Jesus called us to do things like love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And when you think about it, Jesus' most famous parable... The parable of the prodigal son is very similar to the book of Jonah. You guys probably know the story, right? A man had two sons. The younger son, kind of like Nineveh. He goes astray. He asks for the family inheritance, and then he leaves, and then he blows it all on the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Vegas. Wastes it all. And then he's broke, and he's got nowhere to go. 
He realizes what a fool he's been, and so he repents. He goes back home, and he's filled with fear and shame. He doesn't even expect to be welcomed back into the family, but he hopes that maybe he'll be able to work as a slave for his father. But his father does not reject him. He runs out to meet him. He gives him a big hug, and he throws a party to welcome him back home and back into the family. But the older brother, the one who had stayed home, he couldn't bring himself to celebrate. Like Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he was very angry. And he raged at his father, and he refused to go into that party. And the parable ends with the father welcoming his older son to come celebrate because the brother who was lost has now been found. And the story ends on a cliffhanger. Will he go in or will he not? Will he embrace mercy and celebrate or will he hold on to his desire for retribution? What will he choose? The parable ends very similarly to the story of Jonah with that question left hanging. Will Jonah embrace mercy or will he hold on to this desire for retribution? The message of the book of Jonah and the message of Jesus are consistent. Both invite us to love redemption more than retribution. Both invite us to love redemption more than retribution. There's a line that Jesus uses multiple times in the Gospels. Uh, He quotes God's words from the book of Hosea, which says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, you've got to learn what this means. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Which means, what God really wants from you is a merciful heart. He wants that more than your religious rituals, more than your animal sacrifices. He wants you to have a heart that is concerned for the hurting, the oppressed, the spiritually lost, and the morally ignorant, both from among your own people and even among your enemies. And Jonah isn't quite there yet. I'm reminded of what he prayed in chapter 2. From within the belly of the whale, within the depths of Sheol, he said this, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. Now that sounds pious, But it isn't quite the prayer that God is really looking for, is it? Jonah says that he'll offer animal sacrifices, but he still isn't ready to offer a merciful heart, which is what God really wants most of all. That's what the story of Jonah is telling us. I know, this is a really tough book. And when it comes to application, I wrestled with that a lot this week. And I don't know if I have a lot to give you 
in terms of application. Instead, what I'm going to give you are just a couple of questions to sit with. We're going to have a, a time of reflection. The band's going to come up in a moment. Um, I'm just going to ask you to reflect on these questions. And I also want you to consider, this is something that really struck me as remarkable. Isn't it amazing that the Jewish people looked at this book, the book of Jonah, a book calling for them to have empathy even for their enemies, and they said, that's from God, and they canonized it. They put it in their scriptures. That is remarkable. So, I'd like to invite the worship team up, and uh, these are the questions I encourage you to reflect on. One, do I recognize the priority God has for growing mercy in my heart? Two, do I tend to desire redemption more than retribution, or retribution more than redemption? And three, are there any vines in my life? Right, these would be comforts that I care more about than the suffering of others. So, Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this remarkable book that challenges us. Um, and I pray that right now, as we reflect on these questions, you would use them and that you would use the story of Jonah to speak to our hearts, Lord. Uh, we want to be open to hear whatever it is that you want to tell us. We want to have hearts that are filled with mercy, Lord. And, and we want to understand what it looks like to practice mercy in a way that honors you uh, in this very challenging world that we live in. And so give us your direction now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.